and we couldn't get the cot through the snow. And so my coworker and I had to carry a stretcher like through a quarter of a mile in like ankle deep snow. And oh my gosh. Hey, hello, hello, hello. Today we have on Emily, funeral director in Indiana. She's joining us. Um, hello, Emily. How are you? What's going on? I'm good. I um, This morning I kind of did um, a celebration of life memorial mass for my aunt who passed away at the end of June. And it's yeah. been an interesting experience because it's the first death um, in my family I've had since I've been a licensed funeral director. Oh, so okay. That was an interesting experience just to kind of it was the first one I've ever had a, I went into work mode on. So. Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, obviously, sorry for your loss. And, um, you know, we deal with that too all the time. Like we're a family business. So when you have actual family members going through it, I think it's the initial reaction is I'm going to go into my work mode and be like, Hey, I got a job to do. But when you're on the other end of things, it's so different. So how are you able to to cope with that? And what were your feelings and what was different about that experience than like a normal day to day, you know, when you lost someone close to you? Um, I just was a little more aware of like my, like before I was a funeral director and someone in my family passed, I was very aware of my own emotions, but not necessarily the feelings of my friends and family. Obviously if someone was really, torn up and sad I definitely pay attention to them but I just never really thought of like little things people do when they're grieving and I'm a lot more aware of that now Mm -hmm. and so like my dad is his sister he's very close with her and so I've just been really making an effort these past she passed away at the end of June so these past few months I'm just checking up on him and doing things with him to kind of help because certain times a year remind him of his sister and so we do things together and I don't know if prior to being a funeral director I would have ever thought about that yeah I think it gives you a whole different perspective being in the industry because you get accustomed to seeing how how different people cope with things so when you have someone that you lose in your family I think you're even better equipped so that's a great thing were did, did your family find comfort like having you around in that situation would did it make it a little bit better for them do you think a little bit i um really they asked me to do the makeup um on my aunt and i made a point of doing it they also um wanted me to put all of her my aunt loved flashy jewelry as do i um they wanted me to put all of her accessories on um while she was in the casket that was a very great thing to do um i think they liked having me there for some of the backroom stuff just because you know, sometimes families aren't ever 100% sure is the person who's in the back room with my loved one doing everything they need to do. Right. But since I'm family, they knew it was okay. Yeah, I, I think that's that's why so many small businesses and families are around nowadays as funeral homes because of that exact thing. They want someone they, they know and they trust dealing with their loved one in that situation. So I think that's one of the biggest reasons we're able to keep kind of our, our smaller, smaller families together too. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, um, don't work at a family run firm. I work at a corporate owned one, Uh but um, from what I've seen with the family run ones, that's a lot of the appeal to it, especially yeah. in smaller towns. I work in a medium to big size town. So I think 
with a certain demographic where um, I live, that's not as much of an issue when they're looking for in a funeral home, but I'm from a small rural area and that's uh -huh. definitely something people look for. Yeah. And I think even, even if you are like at, you know, a corporate owned, just having people, funeral directors that are involved in the community that they're in, it still has that sort of touch to it. So it doesn't really matter either side because at the end of the day, like that's what we need to do is like be involved with our community. And that way people can know that they're going to a place that's safe for them and safe for their family. Oh, definitely. Um, even like, because I um, live, I moved away where I'm from originally, but mm -hmm. um, so a lot of our clients aren't people I know personally, but a lot of friends and family and then um, people from the community where I'm from originally often ask me questions that are about funeral related things or how to go about making certain um, choices when they're at the funeral home. Right. And uh, I I really take it seriously when they ask me things because I know not only am I representing where I work, I'm representing funeral directors and yep. people in death care and how they see us. Cause I think sometimes the public sees us like, I don't know if you've ever watched phantasm, but the tall no. man from phantasm, no. it's an eighties horror movie. Okay. Watch, but it's, a, it's about a funeral director. Who's like this ghoulish tall old guy that scares everyone. And he, no one likes him and uh -huh. there's a reason you find out that near the end of the movie but like this the stereotypical funeral director that everyone thinks of i'm sure <laughs> yeah so did you have to do did you do the embalming on your aunt sorry is that too far but did you do that oh no you're fine i did not just okay. because that's she hard lived about two and a half hours north oh. of um, so I think if it was more local, they would have gone to where I worked at. But just because yeah. of the distance, um, I didn't embalm her. Did you think you would be able to? I know that's always like a question I feel like a lot of funeral directors get is like, have you dealt any like with family members? And I don't know what the line is for me. Like, I think extremely close ones, I would have a very tough time. But like, it's it's I think it all depends on like, the, the, the level of closest, maybe, I guess that's just me. Maybe some people can do anyone. Like I know some funeral directors that they can do anyone, but there's a certain select few people that I would, I think I would have a hard time, but at the same time, I would, I know I would like take so much pride in it. So it's like a very close debatable thing. You know, what do you think? I could just because I've always been kind of good about compartmentalizing yep. when I'm embalming someone that this is a task I need to get done. Also, yep. I guess with my own family, like I've not experienced this yet, but I know the day will come where like my really immediate family, like my parents yeah. or um, my partner will be elderly and maybe invalid. And um, I'm going to have to be able to take care of them. That yep. might mean having to change diapers or do We're used to that. <laughs> and so I just think, well, if I can do that, I don't think embalming's that much further along. Not really. Um, yeah. I so mean, I feel like if I can commit to that, I would be fine. I, I just see it as like just helping my family one last time. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. That's the way you gotta, you gotta look at it. And I, I love what you said. You have to compartmentalize. That is what it is. And I think, not everyone in the world can do this. That's why we are such a special breed of people because we're able to do that thing. And I think being able to separate and 
have your work atmosphere and your even even from the prep room to like your normal day to like your outside world, being able to have that separate is such a huge thing. So, um, you know, it's it's a special thing that a lot of us are able to do, I think. Yeah, I think the closest I came to embalming a loved one, it wasn't embalming even, it was minimal prep, was um, in the community where I live. Um, I Before I was a funeral director, even involved in funeral stuff at all, or even went to mortuary school, I did work, or I, I volunteered with a youth program. Mm-hmm. And one mm-hmm. of the children that was in that program I helped, um, at this point, this child was a teenager. Um, they passed away oh, when I man. was a funeral director. And so I did minimal prep on that teenager and I was able to do it. I, I also just saw how devastated this child's parents were. And I just wanted to do that for them. And yeah. I, that's how I see it is just that by making the deceased look viewable and how they used to look that's really helping the family and that's how i'd see it with my own family absolutely that's that's such a great way to look at it so how'd you get started in the funeral industry in the first place speaking of which like how'd you how'd you get into this crazy industry it definitely wasn't my first career i used to work in stained glass wow okay smooth transition there (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) um So I went to art school in the town that I'm currently live at. Uh And then when I graduated art school, I'm one of the few art school graduates who can say they got their dream job right out of school, um, which was to work at a stained glass studio. And that was two hours south of where I lived at that time, where I currently live now. Uh And so um, I was paying double rent because I couldn't find a subletter for my college apartment. And after about a year or... I think six months to eight months, so it wasn't a full year, um, my job didn't pan out and mm. I was paying double rent. So I just moved back to where I went to college at and I worked odd jobs for a long time because I couldn't find work in another stained glass studio. And um, eventually I um, was working as a city park custodian, which means I have to like clean public park bathrooms and Ooh. clean up all the trash. And where we live, there's a very high... Um, homeless population so i had to clean up a lot of used needles and blood and feces and urine um and then yeah just the general public not even just homeless people would trash the public park bathroom so there was a lot of gross stuff i saw every day and i was like so that was getting you ready right there (laughs) yeah i was like if i can handle this okay i think i can be around bodies because i um have been collecting not human but i've been collecting skeletons since i was about three years old Oh, okay. Um, and so I've always been interested in deceased things and the decomposition process. Uh-huh. And um, I still collect skeletons. I still have the first one I've had since I was three. So what do you have? Um, what what kind of skeletons do you have? Um, all kinds in your of closet. animals. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a few in the garage, not the closet. Um, <laughs> I have. Um, a horse skeleton oh. a lower jaw of a horse i have a mole skull the mole skull is really cool because they have no eye sockets but they've got a ton of sharp tiny teeth whoa that's yeah. cool um just raccoon possum cat um where do you get those from like how does that even all happen o- all over the place i so when I was little and I first got into it, the very first bone I found was a tiny vertebrae in our backyard. And when I was being a three-year-old, I didn't know if it was a rock or a skeleton. Uh-huh. So I asked my parents and they're like, it's a skeleton. And I thought it was so cool. And they let me keep it surprisingly. 
And then I just wouldn't shut up about it. So they ended <laughs> up buying me like children anatomy books and getting me more skeletons. And some of my sketchier skeletons are from that time just because now when I try to get skeletons and bones, um, I try to make sure they didn't die just for that purpose. Right, uh, right. But some of the ones um, family would buy me when I was like three to five, or I think did kind of come from that. Um, yeah. Like I have a stuffed alligator head and a stuffed rattlesnake head from that time. That gifts. The rattlesnake head's actually a brooch. I could wear it, but it what? looks kind of weird. Yeah, but so it's you didn't mouth just... open, so it's got these sharp teeth. I don't want to get poked on. Yeah, I don't blame you. But most of my skeletons now I just find, um, whether they're roadkill or every now and then if I'm out in a wooded area, I just find a whole skeleton and I just take what I can home and clean it. It's like a treasure hunt. Yeah, or um, I try to find stores that are kind of ethical about where they get their skeletons from, and I'll buy from them. Yeah. But, wow, very interesting. So uh, we kind of got off the rails there. So what? So you were in the parks department cleaning. Then what happened after that? That kind of made the push. To... Well, I um, I still was on the fence about it. I did like dead things, and I knew I could be around bodily fluids. But I got a full time job at a radio station actually. Okay. Um, doing ad. And I was like, well, if I don't like this, I'll go to mortuary school. Yeah. And I like the I worked at, but I'm not a salesperson. So uh -huh. um, I was like, well, I guess I'll go to mortuary school now. So I um, just worked full time at a restaurant after that while going to school. And I found out when I was in mortuary school, you don't have to have a degree to work part time at a funeral home. Okay, right, so, right. I just went into every local funeral home in person in my town. And I was just like, can I work part time? And one finally reached out to me and it's where I work at now. Nice. Um, so I, just when I was in mortuary school, I worked part time at a restaurant, part time at the funeral home, picking up people and um, do helping with services or they'd have me do cleaning or something. Sure. And then eventually when I um, graduated mortuary school, I got a full-time job at the funeral home after I passed my national board to be an apprentice. And then um, eventually after passing my state board, I got hired on. Nice, nice. So you have a, a dual licenseship. What does your day-to-day -day look like? What are you involved with at the funeral home? Um, well, first thing <clears throat> is usually, um, especially if it's like a Monday morning after the weekend. Um, Classic busy. Yeah, my coworkers and I will um, meet in our like office and we'll go over all the new calls and who's meeting who or who needs to go and bomb someone. Yep. Um, it's really just depends on what workload we have already. And sure. then from there, I'll either meet a family or I'll embalm someone or um, sometimes I'll have to do minimal prep before meeting a family. If it's a cremation, they've expressed they want to see their loved one well. Yeah. We're having the arrangement conference, so I'll do that. And then usually in the afternoon, um, after all the families are met and all the embalmings are done in the back room, it's usually my paperwork time. So um, yep. where I work, um, which I don't mind, I know some people hate it, but um, the type of funeral home I work at, they're all about a ton of paperwork. Um, I have okay. to document everything, which yeah. 
I can see a lot of people not liking it, but yeah. I like it because it's really good about covering all our bases in case exactly. something goes wrong. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So I'll do be doing paperwork, or they have us audit files on everyone too. Wow. Um, and um, I'll also um, fill out death certificates, or go to the health department to get death certificates, of or. It's early enough in the afternoon. Sometimes I go to the crematory and get cremated remains and bring mm -hmm. them back or go meet the family later in the day to release cremated remains. Got it. Do you do, you do removals at all or no? You're more just at the funeral um, home type. So when I did work part time, I was all removals. That's all I did. And I'm, even when I was an apprentice, um, they were having me do removals. But now, since I'm full-time as a funeral director, where my boss personally likes us funeral directors to not be sleep-deprived when we meet yes. a family. So he has a separate part-time crew that just does removals. But every now and then, because I've done removals and I've had a lot of experience with it, if we're short on our part-time staff, I'll offer to be on call. Yeah. Uh, and also, sometimes if it's during the day, um, we'll we directors will just go out and do the removal ourselves. Especially if you're a little bit slow, like it's easy, just be like, hey, we can take care of this one. But that's nice yeah. that they, they don't have you going running around in the night. So I, I know every funeral home is different in how they kind of work their process. But um, I do, I, I like that. And um, the paperwork side, like covering your basis, I think that's becoming more and more commonplace with all funeral homes now. I think like maybe you know, back in the day, it wasn't as much like that, but now everyone realizes, hey, this is like, we don't want to get ourselves in a bad position. So let's just like cover our butts and like, let's take care, take care of what we have to do. So it's good to be buttoned up like that. Yeah, recently, it was actually last week, I had a family that was very frantic during a visitation because they were convinced that the deceased had their wedding rings on when they left the hospital. Of course. But, um, I looked on all of the paperwork and just in case someone wasn't thorough and filling out their end of the paperwork, I called the gentleman who embalmed the deceased and the gentleman who went on the removal. I'm like, do you recall seeing any rings on her? Cause it's not on the paperwork, but I want to make sure you didn't miss it. Right. And they're like, no. So I told the family that and I'm like, I'll call the hospital. And so I called the hospital and when I got off the phone with them, cause the hospital hadn't recalled seeing anything, the family came up to me and they're like, Oh yeah, we did take them home. Sorry about that. <laughs> it just it gave me a heart attack, but I'm no just kidding. glad that we had a paper trail. Absolutely. And I mean, you just never know. You, you have to do those checks. So I remember one time um, <clears throat> we had someone that was a, a direct cremation out of a, out of a hospital. And um, we always like, if they're not viewing the person, you know, like a witness or anything, we always will open up the body bag check to make sure there's no jewelry. You look at the, the fingers and you look around the neck for a necklace. And this was a man and there was nothing. So we, we put him in the box or something like that. And he was ready to go. And then the family's asking us, Hey, where, where's his wedding ring? We're looking for his wedding ring. And, um, I remember we were like, Hey, um, we, we checked him over. There was nothing with them. Um, they didn't give us any personal effects. Like, um, we don't have the ring. So let's, let's same like you just did. We'll call the hospital and see, you know, get to the bottom of it. 
And the hospital's like, oh, no, we don't have it. We, we, it, it must be with the body. It must be with the body. And I was like, that's so bizarre. Like, I looked at his fingers and, like, there was nothing there. The hospital put his wedding ring in his denture container in the body bag. And I'm like, thank God that this family, like, asked before because – why are you going to, you're not going to check like a debt, like you look in the denture thing yeah. and like, you don't think twice about it. Cause you know exactly what that looks like. So it's just st- little stuff like that. You just never know. So ever since then, now I, I'm, I look even in the dentures, like you never know if a hospital is going to put a wedding ring in that it's kind of crazy. Actually, that family gave me a bag of clothes and her dentures were in with that bag of clothes. And I really did think for a moment, I had slipped them under a pillow because we had embalmed her already. But right. I really thought, oh, no, what if her ring's in that denture box? And they did family didn't tell me. But I asked yeah. them and they're like, no, we never gave you the ring. It should have been on her. But then they remembered, oh, yeah, we took them home. That's the scary stuff. And and we can yeah. be so thorough. And that's why we have to continue to be thorough every day. But it's just little stuff like that that will unnecessarily will get your heart pounding for no for no reason yeah yeah uh, that course that family they were incredibly kind and understanding but i i don't know if you get funeral services where it's just like everything that could go wrong goes wrong despite everything you do and um this woman was very well-loved in the community. And Uh so I'm, because I'm a relatively newly licensed director, I haven't done a ton of processions yet. Um, So I did the lead car and this was the biggest procession I had done. So um, when we went to the cemetery, it's like in town, but you can't see it from anywhere in town. It's like off on some secluded side street and there's no sign for it. Um, So Uh when I, we am in the lead car. I have mental landmarks. I look at to make sure I'm going the right way. And for that last one, there's like where you turn off since there's no road sign. There's not even a street sign for the street. Uh-huh. Um, I usually look at the motorcycle cops who escort us because they're usually right there in the middle of the road and they're telling me just go that way. Yeah. Well, this procession was so large that um, they couldn't keep up with me, oh, and no. so. I drove right past the street and oh darn I, it yeah and there was a it, not it was a big procession this woman was a school bus driver for a long time okay. and um so there were don't tell um, me there were buses, buses. there were <laughs> yeah and so um I got down to there's a diner down the street from that turnoff and I got to the diner I'm like oh no I've gone the wrong way luckily one of the cop or uh, motorcycle cops caught up to me and he had done this enough that he was like, we'll just do a U-turn. It's okay. Oh my gosh. With the school buses. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, I apologize so much to the family and the school bus drivers that she worked with and they all laughed. I was, I lucked out that they were, they, they took it very funny. I guess when she was alive as a school bus driver, she had a knack for missing stops because she'd be talking to the kids on the bus or she also would hit things with the school bus regularly. Um, <laughs> so they thought it was fine. They're like, oh, she'd been driving. She would have done that too. So See, that's perfect. It's but, like little stuff like that that the family is going to remember just because like it's a funny situation and they're able to take light and be like, oh, this like literally applies to like the person's life. That's hilarious. Yeah. Very but, good. Yeah. I'm, I felt so, even though the family was awesome, I felt so relieved when that service was done just I because imagine. like, I don't know what, was going on but everything just went wrong on that 
those are the worst. And it just kind of is like a a perpetual thing. Like one thing goes wrong and then another, and you're trying to break this habit. But we are very fortunate because when we go through our things with our clients, it's a very short term thing. Like it's maybe max a couple of weeks long, max that we have to. So even if we have like a tough family or things are going wrong, I think we can keep that mentality and be like, hey, this is going to be over over soon. Like we can get through this. And that's the way, I mean, I know that I'm able to do it and the people that I work that's with a lot of times. Look. I like that. Yeah, yeah. So we were talking about um, the dentures earlier. So if you if you get dentures before, will you typically put them in or do you like making your own, like forming your own? Because I know people have different opinions on that um, with the mouth closure. I like to use dentures just because that's, I feel that that's the best form for their mouth because it's made, made for, them. for them, their right. mouth. Um, I don't like using mouth formers if I can help it. Yeah. Um, I only use them if the person just has no teeth and they have really bad thin gums. Yeah. Um, there's just nothing there to support it. I will, I prefer to shape mouths with cotton more than anything yeah. else. Um, <clears throat> but if I can get the dentures as soon as possible, I like to use them. Sure. I'm with you. Totally agree. If, if I have them there, you know, if they bring them after the fact, like, I'm not going to be opening stuff up and like, I'm, that's yeah. just craziness. But do you find like when you use cotton, is there a dehydration at all? That's my only thing that I get scared of with the cotton, which I, I do it too. Or I use like Webrel sometimes like fill in spots. But if it's someone that has like no teeth and you have to use a bunch, do you ever notice that? No, I never really noticed that. I guess it's more um, interior, so it's not as bad. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've never really noticed it from cotton, though. I'll look for that next time now that I think about it. Um, mostly when I see people dehydrate. Sorry, I have a family member over here. It's all good. <laughs> um, she want to hop on? Oh, oh no, she's good. Um, but um, mostly what I notice is usually eyes or fingertips dehydrate yes. first i also have a whether it's good or bad i tend to like to be on the safe side when i embalm people and i'll put i'd rather have hit them with too strong of chemicals yeah. than not enough yeah. um so sometimes my people are a little more prone to dehydrating like sure. in the fingertips or eyes or lips because of that do you use any humectant like with your concoctions that you get going it depends on the person. Sure. So um, where I work, we like a lot of Dodge products. Okay. Um, so, so what do you for use? just like regular embalming, I'll at least use two bottles of like Plasdo 25, which is an yeah. arterial humectant. And that's pretty solid. But sometimes if it's a hard case, I don't use Plasdo just because I want to move up to like medicine firming yeah. or intrafiant. Sure. Um, that intrafiant so, is crazy stuff. <laughs> that's like, yeah, I don't like using intrafiant by itself. Yeah, um, I usually always pair it with medicine firming. And then if I can squeeze some Plasdo in there, I will. But right. um, I recently had a case. We had our trade embalmer come in cause we were all too busy to embalm and he only uses intrafiant and Whew. I'm not happy with the results of his embalming. <laughs> I, uh, I think there's like, because it's so strong, like you can get that like little bit of grayness too. Um, yeah. if you're using just that, uh, what is, um, I'm trying to think of the Dodge that I used to use like a lot. Um, and I should get a box of this to mix. Oh, uh, Chromatech tan. 
I, yeah, I have you ever tried that? That's cool because I mean, who doesn't look good with a tan? You know, so they get to get 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 that color in there sometimes too. I remember that that was like I should snag a box that because that's a good that's good stuff and it's got like some humectant in it too, I believe. Yeah, I um I find medicine firming kind of makes people formaldehyde gray. So if I end up having to use like intrafiant or in medicine together, I'll put a lot more dye in the yeah. tank than I put on like using plasto just for that reason. Sure. And I think every case, like obviously you have to mix and match and then that's what you learn like when you're in the prep room it becomes more like of a, a combination between that art and science and like just experience from it too helps you to be like, Hey, I, I know what's going to work for a given case. And it's all about the repetition and the practice. Yeah. Do you have yeah, any, that's, uh, go ahead. Go I ahead. kind of, Oh, I kind of eyeball and maybe I shouldn't do that as much. I know like when I was in mortuary school, there was, there's that formula and I'm not good at using, I'm not good at math. <laughs> we didn't, we so didn't come I, in here as math people. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I kind of eyeball things, but that's what I had to do in art school. Like in art school, you do ah. learn a certain amount of math and measuring on things when you're drawing and painting, but eyeballing just, it works. Yeah. Do you ever, do you still do any art like on the side or anything like that? Oh yeah. Okay. I, um, paint, I do a lot of oil painting and I also do stained glass panels too. Nice. Still, uh, I even consider, um, I know everyone feels differently about embalming and restorative art, but uh -huh. to me, I consider that an art form. So even oh, yeah. though it's not funeral, being in a funeral home is not what people think of as an art job. It really does fill that creative outlet for me. So. No doubt. I, I think it's a huge aspect of it. You're bringing literal life back into a person and it is an artwork, you know, especially when people that are in the prep room, they understand like, that it is a craft and is an art that we're doing trying to trying to restore yeah people think um when i tell them i really like doing cosmetics on people and restorative art they yeah. think i'm good at doing makeup on living people I'm like no <laughs> i can't i can't do all those makeup tricks that you can do for living people because to me when i do um cosmetics on deceased people it reminds me a lot of oil painting because when i sit down and paint someone's portrait i'm trying to render their like an exact match of like their face shape and right. color yeah. and, and that's what i'm doing when i'm restoring color to someone's face or the form to someone's face sure do you think your background in art has helped you in the funeral industry oh immensely like um at work i'm one of the few people who can do anything with wax really well um yeah. like i sometimes will sculpt whole new lips like not wow. often, but every now and then we get someone whose lips deep, they have thin lips to begin with. Mm -hmm. It's usually really elderly people and they might have a serious underbite or overbite. Yeah. And with all of that on top of not having their dentures in and then their lips dehydrate, they have a huge gap. And I don't like using super glue unless it's a last resort because yeah. it never looks right. So sometimes I'll sculpt like whole new lips over wow. their lips so it can look right. Give us, they won't, yeah. give us a tip for that. Like, cause I never do that. I would love to know what does the process look like for that? And, um, for someone that's never done it before, like myself, tell me how I can do that. Or like, what is a first step to like get started in doing something like that? Um, I use 
use lip wax um, okay. just because it is so malleable. And I just kind of build off the lips that are already there. I really recommend um, if you have a f recent photo of that person, especially if their mouth is closed, to keep looking at that. That uh -huh. way you can kind of figure out their line of closure is. But sometimes you can just figure that out looking at their mouth. Because sure. most people, their bottom lip is bigger than their top lip. So if you notice the lips are being a little too even on both sides um you can just kind of thin out the top lip and i also um this is something i learned in art school but when you're working on something that detailed up close um it's really easy to kind of forget what you're looking at and okay. so it starts looking weird after a while so you periodically have to just step back. step back and just stare from a distance like what you're working on which or get in this out of case the room even What'd you say? Or even get out of the room, I would say, sometimes, like when oh, you're yeah, doing yeah, restorative you work. Give yourself a break, because if you work on it for too long, then, yeah, you just kind of get sucked in. And yeah. it just, what you, when you finally hit, like, your high point, then it looks bad after that if you keep picking at it. Yeah, I know. I think that's always the thing, because you try to do, like, a little bit more, and then it ends up working against you, and then you have to, like, redo it. So it's like, once you're, like satisfied i think you got to call it because we yeah. could we could spend hours and hours and hours on these different like restorative things but once you hit a point where you're like this is like solid get away is my advice yeah. because you can go on and on and it actually will probably end up looking worse or just take you forever to get back to where you just originally were just doing this kind of work exactly yeah that's how i've done i've ruined a lot of oil paintings doing that so <laughs> So do you use uh, lipstick afterward? Like, is that able to go on that wax? Is it like the normal coloring then? Yeah, because um, our lip wax, every now and then I get someone in whose lips actually match the lip wax. It's really ah. awesome when that happens, but most people don't. Um, usually the lip wax is too dark. So I'll go over. Um, have you ever heard of Lola 7 Cosmetics? Yeah. Yeah, I love their lip palette, like their natural lip palette. And that's what I use the most on people's lips because most of the people we get in, at least where I live, and I think it's also because we get mostly elderly people in, which which isn't a bad thing because huh. you don't want to see a lot of young people. But most of Way our better. clients don't want a full face of makeup. They want natural. Yep. Wear. And so um, I usually do tell them there's going to be some cosmetics on to restore color and form the face, but I don't do full lipstick usually i usually just use color from that palette and just match it to whatever their lip color originally was i'm gonna have to get that it's called lola's what was it lola seven lola seven okay i'm gonna get that and try it because i'm running low on a couple of my different stuff so i'm it's always fun yeah, to like it, try new things yeah it's like it's really worth the money because like we had this tube of what's called natural man that was really that. good for um, lip color for men. Also, sorry if you hear um, some noise. There's a dog that's All good. hanging out with me right All now. Good. Um, but um, we had that tube forever. It looked like it had been there for 20 years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and it finally ran out, and we were like, what are we going to do? Because none of the like regular makeup matched. So right. I finally that Lola 7 lip palette and it did the job and so Sweet. everyone uses it now yeah I'm gonna get on that train for sure I find myself and, like looking at my lips as we're talking about this on the camera yeah. <laughs> and, well you never realize how much red is in your lips or yeah. pink until there's no more blood there anymore and then everyone's lip that's I think a pet peeve of mine when I go to other um, funeral homes for services I'm like 
did you get the lips right? That's always one that like, like, especially I hate when people have really dark lips and that's not what they had originally. I think that might be the number one thing. I think lips, lips, then eyes, then hands, I would say in that order personally, but lips, I, I, the, the mouth closure is like literally almost everything. So that's why it's just such an important thing that you need to really work on your craft to perfect that as much as you can. Oh, definitely. And then another thing that's always been a pet peeve of mine is making people too pale. Um, I, like, I know some places don't like using dye in the tank and that's fine, but I think you have to make up for it with cosmetics. Um, and you have to kind of go overboard with the blush sometimes, but I think it's easier to take away than have to build up with at least cosmetics. That's true. Um, I love tint for that exact. So that's just like an like the similar thing to using dye, but using it after the fact is the way I look at it. And then you can kind of pinpoint the areas that are like a little bit more rosy, typically on a person like the cheeks. And then you could go heavier on the tint. I think that's always like a good, good way to do it. So it's a very similar thing. It's whether you want to do it from the outside in or the inside out, you know, the objective is very similar. Yeah. I think with everyone, even if they were a perfect embalming and that they're firm and they have decent color, I give everyone a certain amount of red tint to their face and lip color. Um, you, even on people who have a really dark skin tone, you don't think, you don't think like someone who's very black skinned is going to have like, like, you know, you see a super pale redheaded person. that's all beet red and you don't think, Oh, they're going to use, use that same amount of red in their skin, but they do. Yeah. You don't realize it until you go back and reapply red to someone's skin and Absolutely. you're like, there's, there's a lot of blood vessels in everyone. Right, exactly. And you like realize that like after you're in the prep room for so long, like, like everyone needs that coloring because of like all that you lose during it. Do you have any uh, good stories from your years in the industry, whether that's in the prep room or meeting with the family or anything like that? Do you have a good story for us? I do. Um, it was when I worked part time, I, it was, I was still in mortuary school. Um, but I was about done, but it was in like February of I think 2020 or 20, no, 2020, I think it was February of 2020. Okay. Um, and I live in an area that's like, you know, it's a big college town where I live. It's also kind of a rural area outside of that. And so we had just had a huge snowstorm, and um, so the town at the next day got cleaned pretty well, but the rural areas didn't really. Yeah. And so we got a death call at like nine o'clock at night, and so my coworker and I are driving down this snowy back road that wasn't plowed at all, so we're sliding everywhere, uh, and we pull up to an abandoned house no. and Google. It, maps is insistent this is the house and i'm i start freaking out because i always like watching paranormal stuff Call on youtube and podcasts and so i hear stories about like delivery drivers getting like pranked to abandoned houses and so i like this would be the ultimate freak- prank yeah and so i start freaking out like to my coworker, i'm like you can't, you're not leaving the car until we call the family and know for sure this is where we need to be i'm like we're not we're not setting foot out here and he, he's like, okay, he didn't seem as worried. But um, then I called the family and it turned out that the old elderly woman, she was in her late nineties when she passed, she used to live in that abandoned house. Uh. And it got to be, it was like a civil war era home and it got to be 
in such disarray she gave up on trying to fix it so she just moved a quarter of a mile back behind that house um so you couldn't see her house from the road but um the problem was is it just snowed and because she just died no one ever called the plow to come in to plow her driveway so we couldn't get the um van down so we just got our cot out and we couldn't get the cot through the snow and so my coworker and I had to carry a stretcher like through a quarter of a mile in like ankle deep snow. And oh my I didn't gosh. Know, yeah, I didn't know it was out in the country, so I wore dress shoes. So oh. I'm having like water and snow in my feet. And Awful. so we were lucky though. This woman was pretty small. Um, so we got her bundled up and we put her on the stretcher and covered her with a sheet and carried her a quarter of a mile back to the van. Jeez. But yeah, her family was very appreciative. They felt bad that they hadn't plowed yet, I'm but sure. if she had been much bigger, all I could think to do was call the fire department. Yeah, you would, you would I, have to, because there's, yeah. there's just no way you'd be able to truck through that. And it's impossible. That's absolutely brutal. And now I hope there aren't some tricksters listening to this and be like, oh, we could totally get a funeral home on like the most elaborate prank of all time, like saying, hey, come to this house at this time. And like, uh, I'm just imagining. So hopefully we don't have any pranksters out there listening. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't prank your funeral director. We're under enough stress. Yes, we, don't we, we work too hard as it is. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for taking the time. We we love uh, hearing all your fun stories and your your knowledge. And you gave us some great tips for, for us in the prep room with um, our lips and all that stuff. And uh, we wish you all the best at your memorial service for your aunt and uh, hope to be in touch soon. All right. Thank you so much, Michael. You have a great day, Emily. Bye.